This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You know the globalized food supply is fragile. Experts find food riots are possible even in the United Kingdom as climate change ramps up. From Cambridge, Alla Jones outlines how food stress boils over. Around the world, crops may not be planted or harvested because it's too hot to work outside. From Columbia University, Connor Dundiez reports. Plus, selections by Dr. Vanessa Andriotti on final care for an age on life support. Her book, Hospicing Modernity. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShot. Dozens of experts say food riots could erupt in the UK within the next 50 years and maybe in the next 10. Really? Is that possible? As in many countries, the population was shocked at the fragility of food in the early 2020 COVID shutdowns. Food prices are still very high, and 2023 bad weather damaged UK crops. We all need to know about food security as the climate shifts. Dr. Alla Jones is a member of the Science Advisory Group for the UK Global Food Security Programme as Director of the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglia Ruskin University. Jones is lead author of a big new expert survey on UK food. In October, they published Scoping Potential Routes to UK Civil Unrest Via the Food System. From Cambridge, Alla Jones, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Is a real food crisis bringing rioters out on the streets? It hasn't happened for over 100 years. And you advised the UK government on food security. You were part of the UK-US Task Force on Extreme Weather and Global Food Resilience. Why your continuing concern? I think what we've seen around the world is more tension and more problems within the food system. So as you said in the introduction, food prices are at an all-time high. And also the use of things like food banks, where people reliant on donations for food in the UK, is at an all-time high. So the pressure in the food system is really high. And while we haven't seen uh, riots of really large scale within the UK for for many decades, uh, we have seen small-scale riots and protests around availability of food, uh, both in the UK but also um, across Europe. So really the question is, what are the things that will trigger people going out and protesting and and how those protests become riots and and what we can do to try and alleviate that pressure so that people feel secure in their access to food going forward. And your analysis finds civil unrest could develop even if the country doesn't actually run out of food. What is another possible cause? So even if we don't run out of food, there's two different causes there. One is distribution and the other is price. So even if we've got enough food, if it's unaffordable for the majority of people, then obviously they can't access it. Or if we have a distribution problem, whether that's problems with transport or logistics in moving food around the country, then it's not necessary that, that you know the whole country will experience protests or, or disturbances around access to food, but it could be pockets appear uh, where that distribution has not been possible. The new paper points to, quote, the rise in social media and sensationalist journalism, and with the public expectation that one should be able to buy anything more or less at the same price at any time of year, 
Talk to us about the fragility of public expectations in the developed world. What we've seen is that people now do expect the system to be able to provide what they need when they need it, and also that it should be affordable. We've seen globalization has provided us with supply chains that can provide any fruit or vegetable at any time of the year. And people have got used to that and, and used to being able to buy you know, fruit and veg at times of the year where you couldn't grow them domestically. So with that expectation becomes additional fragility. So as soon as and we saw this during COVID uh, and within the UK as well, when uh, the UK left the European Union, we saw disruptions to supply chains. And there was a lot of tension within the consumer groups about just some products not being available, whether that was tomatoes or lettuce. Uh, it didn't spill over to riots, but you could see the tension within the system rise because some supply chains stopped working. And when it's food in particular, those tensions can, can rise quite rapidly. Uh, and we've certainly seen it in many countries around the world where uh, access to particular sorts of food can lead to rioting uh, and can lead to protest very rapidly. As we speak, wet weather damaged local UK vegetables, straining some supermarket staples for the holiday season. But can't we always import more if climate instability hits? What we've been seeing, especially in the UK, is this assumption that we can always import, that the international markets will be able to uh, help us withstand any local and domestic shocks. And certainly for the UK, we import approximately half our food uh, all the time. So we're, we're very reliant on international markets. The challenges that we're going to face going forward is around disruptions to those supply chains, either because we, we change trade agreements, and we saw that with the European Union in the UK, or because you've got increasing impacts of things like climate change around the world, where large bread baskets, so these are areas that grow a lot of our food, for example, in the US or, or in Ukraine and Russia or in China uh, and across Europe, where they get disrupted. And, you, and we have seen losses of 10% of global food, uh, global wheat or global rice in that given year. Sometimes we have the stocks to be able to withstand those sorts of shocks that you can imagine quite easily at the sort of perfect storm of, of losing wheat harvests in the U.S. due to food and floods or droughts coupled with extreme rainfall in the U.K., meaning that international prices are really high. So up until this point, we've been able to outbid poorer countries uh, or, or stabilize our, our supply chains, but we can't always rely on being able to, to outbid everybody on international markets. Well, so in an emergency, could the country feed itself as it tried to do in World War II? So what happened in World War II was, was a dramatic change in the way we used our landscape. We were also a, a much smaller population and much less reliant on imports. So currently, the 50% reliance on imports. There is the possibility of changing what we eat, uh, so we would have to be much less reliant on meat so that the you know, per calorie output from our land uh, was much higher so that we're not feeding food to animals and then you know, creating that supply chain. So, yes, the UK could probably be self-sufficient, although there's lots of research going on to see if, how true that is, but our diets would have to be vastly different from, they are, from what they are today 
and also what we eat and when we eat it would need to be very different. So it's also, of course it would be very seasonal. So the big question is how quickly could we change everything? It wouldn't be overnight. People always struggle to change diets over many years. So if suddenly we had to be self-sufficient, then there probably would be a lot of tension in the system and certainly tension within society uh, and across communities and resistance to that, the scale of change that would be needed. What were the questions your new paper with 56 co-authors asked? So what we asked was very general questions around what do we think the risks are in the food system? How do we see some of these risks playing out over what sort of time scale? And this was general risks across the whole food system. So we covered things like the rise of social media, information, access to knowledge that people have. What does that do in terms of tension within the food system? Through to climate change, extreme weather, loss of biodiversity, pollinators, bees, things that are really important, increasing prices into farms, transport, uh, as well as more extreme uh, impacts like uh, extreme uh, space weather, so that disrupting telecommunications, disrupting logistics. So we did ask these experts to try and list as many risks as they could and then put their best uh, estimate at likelihood of these sorts of events happening over a 10- or 50-year time frame. Uh, and what did experts conclude about the chances of food riots in the UK within the next 50 years or, or even the next 10? So the vast majority of experts thought over the next 50 years that, that riots were certainly possible in the UK, and and they thought that, that the drivers for that, the main ones, would be climate change or impacts of climate change, although there are a number of different cascading risks, so climate change impacting some physical loss, but then also impacting transport and impacting uh, societies in different ways. So that kind of multiple risks coming together over the next 50 years could make accessibility in the UK a problem and accessibility then leading into some form of riot. Over the shorter period of time, then there was much less consensus. It certainly wasn't the majority. It was a minority of people thought that we could still see some form of protest in the UK, mostly down to accessibility. So that's more about distribution than it is about overall access and availability. But that, you know, that distribution, we could certainly see pockets, especially in areas where there, are, there is more poverty in the UK and more people reliant on food banks and donations currently than a, you know, a distribution challenge with, across that kind of supply chain in those regions could lead to some sort of riot or protest. Unlike the so-called Cardiff-Ellie bread riots in 1991, which began really as a business dispute, what is the threshold your team established as a real riot? So we didn't actually define a threshold. What we did try and say is this is the scale of riot that we wanted people to think about when they were looking at the likelihood of it happening. So the sort of uh, riots that we had with the London riots, which were more around race and the police in the last decade. So we have seen London riots and people going out in the streets, committing violence, looting shops. They're very small pockets. So we try to ask people to imagine what would create that, but on a much larger scale. So not the level on a larger scale, but just more distributed across the UK. So certainly those sorts of race riot type levels that we have seen, but as a result of some sort of crisis in the food system and happening in more than uh, just those localised areas. 
Well, in the scenario in the paper, you talk about 30,000 people injured. What, what do you mean by injured? So we used uh, the definition that was used, that, that was used in, the, in the London riots, and this is how police categorize the impact of the riots. So injuries, as noted by the police, could be anything from you know, people getting injured because of broken glass, ending up in fights. They could be hospitalized, but, but a lot of those are, are fairly minor injuries, but some can be fairly major injuries. Uh, in separate research, we, we have been looking at you know, the scale of injury and, and, and whether when you've looked at food riots around the world in the past, some of these protests and riots, especially around North Africa and the Middle East, they lead to death of protesters because of extreme responses by the authorities um, or, or the riots become uh, much larger. And we saw that in the Arab Spring, which then led to governments being toppled. So, th- so that, that kind of threshold is easier to, to quantify one person dying. But the definition we used around injuries for, for this scenario was more around how police would categorize an injury. So has actual bodily harm happened would someone be arrested for that? The scale of that it is quite wide. If people think food will come within a few days, that is different from a dread of a longer period. Is the response recovery time a factor in whether riots happen? What do you think? Uh, I think that's absolutely true. We didn't ask about response recovery times uh, and how long that would need to be before uh, the protest started to happen. But certainly... If you look at the UK food system and the resilience of it and supply chains, we often say that, uh, you know, everyone's seven days away from food running out. So our supply chains are incredibly efficient and just in time. Uh, And a lot of the UK food distribution is on the back of lorries rather than in storage. So it's constantly in movement. So when we look at recovery timescales, we've also got to look at how efficient the system is and how recovery would happen. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's when the supply chain breaks down, you've got a three to seven day period where the local supply would run out. And how quickly you can then recover means that you've got an additional period of time on that. How people perceive it. And this is where we you know, talk about the, the rise of social media and the press and how it's talked about. So if it's talked about in a measured way, there's been a supply chain problem, but people are working on it and uh, supply should be back up in three to five days. So don't panic. That would help alleviate some of the problems. But if the social media and the newspapers report it as, you know, shock photos of no food on, shelves in certain supermarkets, people go out and panic buy, there's even less food then in the system, and that can speed up the problem, and therefore that response time needs to be even shorter. So as soon as people see no food in the shops, then protests can happen really quickly. So, so that kind of response time depends on how people respond to the initial shock. If shops are empty for two, three days, uh, people get very worried very quickly. Did any of the expert respondents cite hacking, artificial intelligence, or terrorism as a threat to food? Yeah, so uh, both uh, AI and terrorism were factors linked into some of those risks, as well as you know things like food uh, health issues, so um, outbreaks of different sorts of uh, avian flu in birds 
or uh, swine flu. So that sort of disease vectors within uh, the food system as well could be a, could be a risk. But in particular, around um, AI in logistics and transport and the whole food system and sales, then that's a particular threat. As is, as is direct terrorism, both in terms of physical risks to supply chains and especially global supply chains. Uh, so there are particular risk points in the global supply chain, but also through uh, uh, cyber terrorism taking down transport logistics. That's also a risk to the food system. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Alan Jones, director of the Global Sustainability Institute in Cambridge. He led a study into possible food riots in the United Kingdom as food security breaks down. There are scenarios where the same food breakdowns may not cause mass riots. Consider food shortages during a deadly pandemic or fear of bombardment, something like that. Are food riots inevitable at some point as people starve? Not. They're not inevitable. Uh, and what I think the reason to do this sort of research to understand where the risks come from is how to make them much less likely. When people feel that they are all working together and feel the same risk together, actually protests are much less likely. So if there's a real global threat to food systems, for example, during bombardments in the Second World War, the community tries to support itself to respond. They don't go out and protest because they don't think someone's withholding food or the system isn't working properly. If people think the system is working properly and trying to protect them, but has failed for some reason, it's outside of the system's control. They're much more likely to collaborate and work together. So part of this is, work isn't to say, you know, riots are inevitable. It's more, let's get the system to respond so people can see that we're working really hard to make this risk much lower. So that if things do happen, and we certainly anticipate climate change impacts to be quite significant over the next 10, 20 years, then people don't think that the system is failing them. Uh, they feel as protected as they possibly can, and then they will collaborate, uh, and, and the outcomes will be much better. Do you think riots are always bad, always leading to a more broken society, or could riots be cathartic, like revolution needed for new circumstances? Very interesting question. I think ideally you get a change in the way the system works without the need for a riot. However, some riots and certainly protests in the past have led to positive change. And it, it's very unfortunate, and we don't want to see people injuring themselves or being injured during those protests to create change. But you know, the suffragettes or anti-slavery movements, these things have happened because people went out on the street and said, we want to see a system change. I hope it doesn't come to the point where the only way we can get changes in the food system is through protest. Alla Jones, you've been working on UK food security for many years. Is the government of the people getting any closer to national food readiness for emergencies? So I think um, in the UK, not really. Uh, we've seen an increasing reliance on international markets and international supply chains. There has been some work around food security, and we've seen uh, reports on food systems and the future of food being commissioned by the UK government and, and especially looking at things like diet changes and what we need out of food as well as 
strategies around how we uh, ensure domestic production is protected so that we do have some form of domestic production. What we haven't seen is that being joined up into a proper food security strategy looking forward. Uh, this new work asks not just academics, but experts in business and the nonprofit sector. Did you find agreement that climate change is a major factor in food insecurity and how it develops? Yeah, so from all the experts, it was from a wide range of uh, businesses, government, academics, third sectors, charity sectors, uh, and climate change was by far the biggest factor in creating increased risk in the food system going forward. So there was, there was no disagreement about climate change. It was usually ranked at number one. The differences came in exactly how that would be impacting and over what time scales. And climate scientists talk of tipping points, although many now prefer thresholds. Do we know what the thresholds and trigger points for populations fearing for their food supply to become riots? Uh, not really. There is a, an increasing amount of work trying to understand the food system as, and its reliance on, in particular, the, the prevailing weather. So there's lots of work, especially around Europe, looking at North Atlantic currents uh, and what that would do if, if that slowed down dramatically, what that would do to our, our prevailing weather system. There are particular local tipping points or thresholds for certain crops in some countries and they're quite well known and well studied. So if you're growing cocoa in a certain country and the temperature is changing and, and weather patterns are changing, then it may not be possible to grow cocoa in that particular country. You need to look at alternative crops, but then that means you have to look at the different supply chains, different places to sell it. You need to create different markets. So that all takes time. And, and what we're seeing is that it's taking longer to change the whole supply chain system and market system than climate change is giving us. So there are, there are sort of thresholds both in the social system around food systems and there are thresholds in the physical system, which means crops are moving further north and some crops are no longer viable in some countries. The big question is, globally, what, what is there? Is there a threshold in food systems? You know, at what point do... Uh, extreme weather events become so commonplace that the resilience of the whole system needs to be thought of in a different way. In the century, there have been food riots in Bangladesh and mostly in North Africa. The 2022 crisis in Sri Lanka was partly due to food and energy shortages, plus wild inflation. But again, there hasn't been a food riot in recent years in the UK, so the population has no experience. I wonder, does that make it harder to predict what comes next? It does make it harder to predict what comes next. I think there's interesting conversations around, you know, because we haven't seen food riots in the UK recently, does that mean we'll never see them? Is it less likely that there will be a food riot? We have seen other sorts of riots in the UK, uh, riots around racial discrimination or uh, things of those sorts. So the, the question is really what would the trigger point be for a food-related riot in the UK. We, we haven't seen it yet. But a lot of the factors that we've seen in other countries, insecurity around food, long-term insecurity around food, are present in the UK. And, and in countries that are very close, like France or Spain, um, we have seen certainly large-scale food protests uh, for a variety of different reasons and a variety of different political 
uh, factors that go into that. So while we say we haven't seen them in the UK, we've, we've seen them in countries that are very similar. So it, it may just be a question of time. On the show, I covered studies showing multiple crop failures in key bread baskets are possible as climate destabilization continues. Could crop failures in faraway places lead to food riots where you live? And I wonder what the delay time might be. They certainly could. We've, we've also looked at breadbasket failures in uh, certain geographies and especially where they're major contributors to global food prices. So you know, extreme weather in the U.S. could take out the international wheat market. And certainly in the past, where around 2007, prior to um, the Arab Spring and the food riots that we saw across North Africa, there was a huge increase in international food prices. So more than trebling of uh, wheat prices, rice prices, and soybean and corn, maize. So that kind of increase, the trebling of international food prices of the raw ingredients, I don't translate into trebling of, of bread prices, but where you're directly exposed to that international price, so in, in certain developing countries, but you're expectation of availability and access to food dramatically drops and so you're much quicker to go out and protest. Somewhere like the UK where there is a delay in the system through the prices because you don't see a trembling in the price of a, of a loaf of bread or uh, fruit and vegetables because there's a lot of marketing costs and supply chain costs that are added onto it which makes it more of the bulk of the price. The delay can be longer than if you're, you're directly exposed. So it, it's, you know, but that international prices, it depends how quickly markets respond. Uh, and then what happens to the food on the international market? So, so far, the UK has been able to buy it on international markets. But if there was a, a major breadbasket failure and food prices went up by a factor of three or five again, and then if that meant the UK and other countries could outbid the UK on the international markets, then you'd expect to see some accessibility issues in the UK quite quickly, but it certainly wouldn't be within days. It would be within, uh, within a season. If you were tasked with writing a food security primer for the UK population at large, any ideas or, or tips for our listeners where you would start? I think the, the most important thing really is that it, it, it is a, a, a system problem. So in terms of food security for the population at large, it's not really about going out and stockpiling and trying to protect our own. Uh, it's about talking to the community, talking to the people in authority, whether those are the local politicians within uh, you know, local councils, through to the national government, to say, you know, what are you doing about food security? Can you tell me how you're thinking about how the UK would withstand these future shocks, which are expected, um, which are within the system, uh, and being open to change? Uh, you know, one of the easiest ways of changing pressure on the food system is changing diet, eating less meat, take some pressure out of the food system. But we need to see this, this more uh, system change uh, happening before we really expect individuals to be able to save the system by themselves. From the Global Sustainability Institute at Cambridge, we've been speaking with Director Alan Jones. 
He led the paper Scoping Potential Routes to UK Civil Unrest via the Food System, Results of a Structured Expert Elicitation. Find links and more discussion in my show blog at ecoshock.org, published Wednesdays, and that's Thursday in Europe. I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Do you feel nervous about the food supply in coming years as the climate goes extreme? Here is a new wrinkle. The weak link in the global food chain that stretches to your door may be human. Agricultural workers face deadly levels of heat and humidity right when they need to plant or harvest crops that feed billions of people. To find the risks in a warming world, a Columbia University undergraduate student teamed up with scientists at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. They just published the paper, Increased Extreme Humid Heat Hazard, Faced by Agricultural Workers. We reached the lead author, Connor Dundias. Connor, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much, Alec. It's a pleasure to be here. Most of our listeners buy their food at a grocery store. Why should we worry about conditions for agricultural workers as climate change ramps up? Well, especially nowadays, the global food system is very connected. We have globalized logistic systems that are transferring food uh, from thousands and thousands of miles away. So when we think about a warming world, we have to think about all of these different links in the supply chain and how are the distribution of food and especially the impact of heat on the laborers, the crop workers who are harvesting this food is impacting each one of those links in the supply chain. And the key concept for our survival in extreme heat is the wet bulb temperature. It's not easy to grasp, but how would you explain it? Yeah, so wet bulb temperature is, uh, at least here in the United States, akin to what we often see as the heat index. They're not exactly a one-to-one relationship, but what the heat index tries to capture is the combined effect of the what we call the dry bulb temperature, just the uh, air temperature that you would feel outside, and the impact from humidity in the air. So we can think of wet bulb Uh, like the heat index or the, you often hear it called the real feel uh, temperature outside, as trying to capture the combined effect of air temperature and humidity. If you're outside and it's a particularly muggy day, you're going to feel as if the temperature outside is much hotter than maybe just your dry bulb thermometer hanging outside the window might tell you. And when it comes to heat and humidity, at what point does discomfort turn to possibly fatal danger? So the threshold we used in our study was 27 degrees centigrade wet bulb. So this is roughly the boundary uh, that the National Weather Service in the United States has identified as the boundary for danger to human health. Beyond this, we, we reach... 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. This has been identified in previous work as the theoretical lethal limit of wet bulb temperature. 
I interviewed uh, Dr. Daniel J. Vasilio. He's a postdoctoral scientist at Penn State, and his tests on actual humans, he used students, showed that people became uncomfortable and ranging towards sick at a much lower temperature. So I'm glad that you chose the 27-degree wet bulb temperature instead of 35. Yeah, that's right. There's actually been a few papers that have come out in the past year that have tried to revise the differences between these thresholds uh, in terms of discomfort, danger, and specific impacts to, to human health. We feel pretty comfortable that our 27 degrees is an, a, is an appropriate threshold for the work we did here. But of course, there are so many different factors to take into account when we think about all the different activities that people might be doing outside, how uh, acclimated they are to their specific climate, that these thresholds might be more variable than we think for different populations. Well, most weather watchers are looking for absolute high temperatures, the dry bulb temperature. But as you cite in your report, a 2020 study led by Pinya Wang found extreme high wet bulb temperature is more sensitive to the changing climate than extreme high dry bulb temperature. Hot and humid events are intensified by global warming more than those hot, dry days. Are we looking at the wrong risks? Yeah, that's right. I think that you know, shifting our focus towards a measure like wet bulb or heat index puts us in the right direction to better capture the impacts of climate change on the human body here. Uh, like you said, just dry bulb temperature doesn't really capture all of the variability that might really be impacting humans the most. So how did you work out the risks for agricultural workers as climate change gets worse? So the premise of our study was to combine three different sources of information. So we have our climate information, and for us, that was the daily maximum wet bulb temperature. So we have our climate information. Then we try and combine this with agricultural information. Because we're looking at the impact of agricultural workers specifically, we wanted to nail down when, what parts of the year these workers are most likely to be planting or harvesting in the field. So we took crop planting and harvest season dates from the global crop calendar data set, and we tried to line this up with our climate information and our threshold for danger to human health. We looked all around the globe, and we simply asked, if we are in a planting or harvest season for a specific crop, we looked at 12 in this study, if the workers are present in the field, are they exposed to a daily maximum wet bulb temperature greater than this threshold? And so what crops are most affected when field conditions go beyond human tolerance? So after looking at our data, what we found was that rice, maize, sorghum, and soybeans were the most impacted crops across the globe, which is notable because rice and maize specifically are two massively cultivated staple crops across the world. Well, I'll note for our American listeners that maize is basically the same thing as corn, so that's what we're talking about there. Some places will be too hot to work during the day as long as three months of the year, you've found. Where are those first intolerable hotspots? Yeah, so some of the most impacted regions 
in the world that we found for rice and maize, but also for many of the other crops in our study, are in Southeast Asia, uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, parts of China. We also found intolerable, potentially intolerable conditions in equatorial South America. Coastal Mexico is another region near um, uh, Baja, California that pops up. The Gulf of Guinea in Western Africa also is particularly exposed as well. So I guess you didn't count places like Dubai or places on the Gulf because they are desert areas anyway. You were looking at big crop growing areas. That's right. So ultimately, we were restricted in our analysis based on where we have data, uh, where we have all of the data that we need for the analysis. So not only did we have to know that crops were harvested in a specific region, we had to have a fine enough resolution uh, data on the planting and harvest dates for those crops. So those aren't completely available from these uh, agricultural data sets, which as we note in our paper, is a huge uh, area for improvement. The more data that we can collect on agriculture and agricultural workers, where they're harvesting, what times of day they're harvesting, how many laborers are in the field, this is really important data that we're going to need in the future to be able to better pin down where these hazards are across the world. But places like uh, Dubai do see extreme uh, wet bulb temperatures coming off of uh, the coast there. So while the, the hazard is there, uh, data and, and large, agri- you know, large agricultural data in those countries might just not be available. So have the amount of days too extreme for outdoor farm work increased since 1979? And is that speeding up as our emissions mount? Yeah, so across uh, our study period here, it was notable that in the past 20 years specifically, we saw most of the increase in these potential hazardous days to agricultural workers. Not only was the increase uh, apparently nonlinear in these last 20 years, the impact from El Nino events was much larger, especially since the 1997-1998 El Nino events. That's a little worrying because uh, an El Nino heating just began around September of this year, 2023, and other studies found the worst of El Nino comes in the second or even third year, not right away. Do you expect extra heat stress for agricultural workers coming up in 2024 or 25? Based on our analysis, I, I would. The 2016 El Nino was the largest spike in uh, potential hazards to agricultural workers that we found. That was a very big El Nino event. And so I, I think it's reasonable to assume that we, would, we could see another spike like that for our next large El Nino event. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. EcoShock.org You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex. Our guest is American researcher Connor Dunn-Diaz. We're talking about heat and humidity going beyond human tolerance and impacts on the global food chain. Connor, surely humans will find answers. Uh, They can work at night or retreat to cooling huts periodically. Maybe robots can do the harvesting. 
Given the scale of what you found, do you really think there are ways to adapt and keep the big global food chain going? Yes, I do. I do. I think that one of the benefits of our study here is that it provides critical information to policymakers, to people in the agricultural industry, to begin to start thinking about how we can change our agricultural practices to best protect the workers, which really are the backbone of our global food system. Now, previous work has shown that our adaptability, different measures in keeping uh, farm workers cool and healthy during the day might become less effective under these warming scenarios. But personally, I think if we take this information that we have at hand here, we can begin to think through ways of adapting our food system to, again, protect our agricultural workers who are holding up our global food system. So should governments set and enforce outdoor worker safety limits? And is that practical when millions of people must plant and harvest or starve? Yes, I I think so. I think we have an opportunity here to start implementing some of these limits from the perspective of being able to keep our workers in the field during these critical seasons. I noticed uh, a couple years ago during the Pacific Northwest heat wave, I remember hearing a report about strawberry harvesters uh, harvesting overnight during those really, really brutal, brutally hot weeks there. You know, that might seem like an extreme to us now, harvesting throughout the night, but if we begin to establish limits and regulations around when people can be doing work outside, we can keep our agricultural system going. And studies show that hospital visits go up uh, during these hot, humid heat waves, and even chronic kidney disease in Central America has been uh, attributed to this. So there are real-world consequences for those workers. That's right. I think we, we're at a point here where we ha- we're beginning to get a critical mass of information uh, linking these brutally hot heat waves to real impacts, not just agricultural workers, all sorts of uh, outdoor workers, construction workers are also found uh, in the literature around uh, the impacts of heat hazards. These really do have real impacts on people. The kidney disease research that you mentioned was particularly startling to me in that that seems some of the, like some of the best evidence we have at the moment uh, that is linking our warming climate to very granular person-to-person impacts. And the study also highlights climate injustice. The people living in the regions shown in the maps in your paper, hardest hit by the heat and humidity, they're among the poorest. They hardly contributed to climate change, but they suffer most. Your thoughts? We've cited some of the sociological research that has pointed out that, yes, agricultural workers are often some of the most vulnerable populations across the world. And I think it's really important to keep this in mind when we think about, you know, the next time you go to the grocery store, the next time you sit down to have a meal, you know, there are at-risk populations across the world that are working very hard in hazardous conditions here to make that happen. Moving forward, we really need to keep front and center the human dimension of our food system here in light of the fact that these laborers are so at risk across the world. Do you think that 
if these crops fail because people just can't get out there to harvest them or to plant them, that that might uh, stir up more immigration in safer countries to live in? It seems plausible. I mean, I can't really, you know, that's not really my area of expertise. But I think what you're hitting on here is a, a great point to make, the, and it's the fact that we're looking at uh, compound events here. You know, we often think about impacts to the crops themselves under extreme weather events, and now our study is looking at impacts to the, the human dimension of the agricultural system. There are follow-on impacts as well. Now, you know, what those may be in terms of immigration and different uh, regional impacts to society, I don't know, but it's important to keep in mind that there are interlinking impacts that happen to society because of these climate extremes. Well, although we don't really know it in the developed world, about 27% of all workers in the world are agricultural workers. So this is really uh, a key safety point that we need to know and, and something that we can do to protect people. We have been speaking with Connor Dunn-Diaz. Look for his new open access paper, Increased Extreme Humid Heat Hazard Faced by Agricultural Workers. I will put links to follow up in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Connor, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a great time being on. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Modern life reaches the fatal limits of the planet. Dr. Vanessa Andriotti is lead author of the book Hospicing Modernity. In this radio selection, Vanessa talks about the book and the University of British Columbia report, Moving with Storms. Starting with the land acknowledgement, I would like to just affirm my responsibility as a settler, as a racialized settler in this place to support Indigenous peoples to have um, their lands and lives restored. So um, I was asked today to talk a little bit about um, a book that I wrote called Hospice in Modernity and what is relevant of this book. So the book is called uh, Hospice in Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism. And the word modernity there, that's the first chapter is who the heck is modernity? And modernity is a single story, it's presented in the book as a single story of progress, development and civilization that is expiring. And therefore, hospicing is about giving palliative care to a dying modernity while offering prenatal care to uh, systems that could be uh, in gestation, but that we don't yet know what they look like and they, that they could be wiser, uh, but not necessarily. It depends on how we are going to hospice the old in order to be able to, to welcome the new. So the wisdom of the new system depends on our ability to be taught by the mistakes of the old. Um, modernity is expiring because its promises of growth and prosperity have encountered the limits of the planet. And the book looks at the impact of modernity on our thinking, our the ways we feel and process our feelings, our scope of relationships and relationality, and even our neurobiology. 
So it talks about how modernity both has given us specific gifts, but it also limits our existence in the planet. And it looks also at how education has contributed to these limitations and how education can actually support us in overcoming these limitations and, and, and bringing ourselves together to show up differently to each other and to the planet. In the book, modernity is sustained, uh, the explanation is that modernity is sustained through four denials. So the first is the denial, and these denials are socially sanctioned. The first is the denial of systemic violence and complicity in harm, the fact that our comfort, securities, and enjoyments are subsidized by expropriation and exploitation somewhere else. Uh, They happen at the expense of other people, other species, and the land. The second is the denial of the limits of the planet. The fact that the planet cannot sustain exponential growth and consumption indefinitely. The third is the denial of entanglement. Our insistence in seeing ourselves as separate from each other and from the land rather than entangled within a living wider metabolism that is biointelligent, that is the planet. And the fourth is the denial of the magnitude and complexity of the challenges we'll need to face together, the tendency to look for simplistic solutions that make us feel and look good and that may address symptoms, but not the root causes of our collective hypercomplex predicament. So in the book, which is actually the result of the work of a collective called Gesturing Towards the Colonial Futures, we use lots of stories and metaphors uh, to be able to engage people. We're using different parts of the brain with a different neurochemistry of learning. So one of the stories we tell is the story that modernity uh, of the house that modernity built. And in the story, uh, we ask people to observe the different parts of themselves that relate to the story differently so that we can layer ourselves and understand our own complexity in engaging with stories. So this story comes both from the literature, critical literature, but also from uh, the lived experiences of communities where the story was built and workshopped. So I will tell you the story and I will invite you to think about and to observe the parts of yourself that relate differently to the story that I'm going to tell. So the story of the house of modernity has four different parts. In the first part, uh, we talk about uh, the existence of a house on a planet and the house is exceeding the limits of the planet. So this house is built on a foundation of separability, the separation between humans and nature. And it's an imposed sense of separation because we're actually not really separated. We're part of everything. But this sense of separation creates several implications for our existence including the idea that in terms of our life, we need to produce value within the economies of the house to be deserving of being alive. And then other species are uh, also, the value of other species are also measured according to the value they can produce in certain economies within the house. So the intrinsic value of life is one of the things that the separability, the separation between humans and nature, it's one of the things that it it erodes. The separability also creates hierarchies between not only between species, but also between cultures and between individuals. So the worth of individuals is always measured within the house according to how they produce and contribute to the economies within the house.
This house has also two different carrying walls. The first carrying wall is the carrying wall of the nation state. And we tend to think about the nation state as being created to protect people. But the history of the nation state is actually a history of protecting property and property owners in the protection of people through the dispensation of rights like human rights, civil rights or indigenous rights only happens when there's interest convergence between the, the interests of protecting people and the interests of capital and protecting property. Now, the other carrying wall is the carrying wall of universal reason. And this is the single story that I talked about before, the single story of progress, development and civilization that creates epistemicides. It kills the possibility of aliveness for other stories of other understandings of progress, other understandings of success, other understandings of development. And then we have the roof of global capital. They, they, it can take different shapes, but the current roof that we have is about speculative shareholder algorithmic capitalism. This roof uh, in this story is structurally damaged for different reasons. I'm not going to go into them. In the book, we explain it a little bit more, but this structural damage is related to the irresponsible pursuit of profit or profit's sake. That's the first part of the story. The second part uh, is about the hidden costs of the house. So you have the house, we have unsustainable growth within the house and overconsumption and two arrows, one extracting and expropriating things from the planet, the other one dumping the waste on the planet. And, and in the planet, we see destitution, dispossession, genocides, and also ecocide. So this second part of the story about the hidden costs of the house show that the house has been created, it's, it's subsidized and is maintained by social and ecological violence. Then we have the third part of the story, which is about the floors of the house. Uh, and here we played a little bit with the idea of global north and south. But at the north of the north in the house, we have the penthouse where there is discretionary wealth, basically. And, and historically and systemically, this wealth is created in the construction of the house. And then we have in the middle the stairs of social mobility of the north of the south. Then we have the south of the north in the basement of the house, people who do not have access to social mobility, who may not want access to social mobility, may want to build different communities, but still within the protection of the house. And in the planet, we have the South of the South, those who are fighting for a different kind of existence and who are receiving the sewage of the house in their territory. So here I would put, for example, the struggle of the Honikui people in the Amazon who are fighting against carbon trading or the financialization of nature, were insisting that they are part of the forest, that they are the forest, and they do not want to live in a house. They want to continue to live in the forest, not because they are forced to, but that, because that is a healthier form of existence. Uh, in relationship to this third part of the story, we have the questioning uh, and, and challenging of the idea of the promise of social mobility, universal middle class for all, that reminds us that if we had the same standards of living of the working class, even of the, uh, the global north, we would need many more planets. The, the estimate is six planets to live because the levels of consumption and production that 
that are necessary for this consumption are unsustainable. And uh, there's already an, uh, an offshoot of the limits of the planet uh, in terms of consuming more than our fair share. Then we have the last frame of the house talking about the structural damage of the roof and the weight of climate destabilization, biodiversity loss, economic instability, uh, the cancellation of rights that we see in many countries, populism, populist governments being elected because people want to protect their interests within the house uh, and a lot of precarity. So we have social, economic, political, mental health and ecological crisis within the house. And then we see more violent conflict uh, and mass enforcement migration also in the planet. So the question here then, do we fix the house? Do we expand the house? Do we deal with another house? Do we live without a house or do we find another planet? And as we engage with these questions, we have also mapped three different streams of perspective. So some people will advocate for soft reform of the house with more modernity as the answer to the problems of modernity. Uh, the same uh, idea of forward, same kind of leadership, just small changes. So same usual questions, same answers. Then there's radical reform, more modernity, but different leadership and larger changes. Same questions, different answers. But then there's beyond reform, where it's acknowledged that more more modernity is not an option, given the violence required to keep modernity in place in the limits of the planet. So here there are different questions and different answers. We have a report called Moving with Storms that talks about the lessons learned in this material, like concrete experiment. And one of the things that we learned um, is that inviting people into the process of hospicing is hard. There's more and more people interested right now, and uh, it, it comes with a lot of anxiety and a lot of uh, grief also for the planet and for everything that's happening. So one of the things that we needed to do as part of the educational inquiry was expand people's capacity to sit with difficult and painful things without relationships falling apart, without people feeling overwhelmed and immobilized, and without people uh, demanding a rescue from the discomfort of this experience. And we developed uh, a set of invitations that really helped people uh, to come to the space and to show up in a different way. And this is what I'm going to conclude my presentation with by sharing those with you. It's an invitation for seven steps back and seven steps forward or aside. And here are the, the, the invitation for the seven steps forward or aside. The first is the invitation to step forward or aside with honesty and courage to see what you don't want to see. The second is the invitation to step forward or aside with humility to find strength in openness and vulnerability. Number three is about stepping forward or aside with self-reflexivity so that you can read how you're being read and learn to read the room. Number four is stepping forward or aside with self-discipline to do the work on yourself so that you don't become work for other people. Five is stepping forward or aside with maturity to do what is needed rather than only what you want to do. Number six is stepping forward or aside with expanding discernment and attention, increasing care in proportion to risk. And number seven is stepping forward or aside with adaptability, flexibility, stamina, and resilience for the long haul. To be prepared to fall, 
to fail, to have our plans shattered, to be, to be stretched, to change course, and to find joy in the struggle itself rather than in the imagined prize, promised outcome at the end. Vanessa Andriotti is currently Dean of the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. Her book is Hospicing Modernity, Facing Humanity's Wrongs and the Implications for Social Activism, published in 2021. The selection for radio comes from her presentation July 21, 2023, posted by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. You can find links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. We are out of time. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.